Part Two of His Master's Voice by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. Seven and a half hours later, the phone in the bedroom of the company apartment that Brock had arranged for me made loud musical sounds, and I rolled over in bed and slapped at the audio-only switch. Yeah. I said sleepily. You asked to be called at 0800, sir, said a pleasant, feminine voice. Yeah, okay, thanks. Uh, I'm awake. You're welcome, sir. I cut off and blinked the sleep out of my eyes. I'd spent an hour and a half in Brock's office, soaking up all the information he gave me and giving him all the information I could. I hoped that he had been more honest and straightforward with me than I had been with him. The trouble with being a double agent is that you frequently have to play dirty with someone you like, respect, and trust. I looked at the watch on my wrist. 0806 Greenwich Standard Time. The girl had been a little late in calling, but it didn't matter that much. All over the solar system, except on Earth itself, the clocks read the same as they do in Greenwich, England. Time zones don't mean anything anywhere except on Earth, where the natives feel that the sun should be at the zenith when the clock says twelve. An irrational concept, to say the least. Well, not really. Let's say that it's an emotional concept. A man feels better if he has the comfortable notion that the position of the sun has something to do with the numbers on the clock. It gives him a sense of security. Only the fact that a man in the belt, or anywhere else in the system for that matter, is not dependent on Sol for lighting purposes, makes it possible to establish a standard time for everyone. Oddly enough, Greenwich Standard Time serves an emotional and religious purpose, too. It's only by the clock that a Jew can tell when the Sabbath begins. It's only by the clock a Catholic can tell when to begin his abstinence on Friday. It's only by the clock that a Moslem can tell when to begin and end the fasts of Ramadan. And it is only by the clock that the various eight-hour work shifts can operate in the belt. On Earth, the four-hour workday is standard, but there's a lot more work to be done in the belt. I got up and got dressed and took the tubeway to Viking Test Area 4, where McGuire was the ruler of the roost. The guard at the main door took one look at my pass, smiled me in, and headed for his phone as soon as I went inside. By the time I had arrived at the office of Chief Engineer Sven Midgard, the whole staff had been alerted, and the top men were waiting for me in Midgard's office. Midgard himself met me in his outer office. A graying man in his sixties, still handsome in the tele-idle way, but running a bit to paunch now that he was approaching middle age. "'Mr. Oak, so glad to see you. So glad we could get you to help us.' "'Happy to be of service,' I said. "'Yes, uh, yes, of course. Come along. Come on in and meet the staff. They're uh, anxious to meet you.' I'd have bet they would be. As far as they knew, I was just the guy who was supposed to take the boss's daughter to school on Luna, 
empowered only to make sure she didn't get into trouble, and had accidentally become McGuire's lord and master when I'd gone to take her off the ship. I was an errand boy who'd managed to get control of a spaceship that was worth millions. A layman who was holding up the work of responsible scientists and technicians. In simple words, a jerk. In spite of the socially acceptable smiles on all their faces, every one of them managed to convey his or her opinion of me by facial expression alone when Midgard introduced me around. Ellsworth Felder was short, big-bellied, round-faced, and slightly red-nosed, like a well-shaved Santa Claus. He was introduced as the head of the Vikings Robotics staff, and he shook hands firmly when he said he was glad to meet me. Erwin Brentwood, the electronicist, was a slight, spare man, with the body of a young boy and a gentle, soft tenor voice. His, How do you do, Mr. Oak? was almost apologetic, and his small hand in mine exerted more pressure than I'd expected. Theodore Vidinsky looked more like a wrestler than a robotics expert. He was as tall as I was, and much wider and heavier, and his expression and voice conveyed the idea that he could have lived a good deal longer without missing my acquaintance. Vivian Devereaux was the only one of the five who gave the impression that she could, if given a chance, begin to like me. She was a tough cord, no-nonsense, finely muscled, alert, and very pretty woman in her late twenties, a not-uncommon type in the belt, although they usually don't come as lovely as that. The red, silver, and blue pattern of her union suit didn't at all distract my attention from the magnificently molded body beneath. I made a mental note to write a letter to the editor of a certain psychological journal. I decided that if this gal could think as good as she looked, she was probably one hell of a fine mathematician. The conference room was small, cozy, and ringed with couches. On earth they would have been called padded benches, and they would have been uncomfortably hard. But you don't need inner springs and sponge rubber when your weight has dropped by ninety-seven percent. Midgard served coffee all around, while we kept up a patter of chatter that served to get us acquainted before we launched into deep thinking and heavy conversation. "'Well,' said Midgard when he finally sat down, "'now that Mr. Oak is here, I suggest we begin scheduling our program.' There was a momentary silence. Then the boyish Brentwood said, I think we ought to explain to Mr. Oak just what our problem is. That was generally agreed upon, and for the next half hour I heard another rerun of information I already had. I just tried to look receptive and kept my mouth shut. So you see, Midgard finally wound up, in order to put McGuire through his paces, your cooperation is vitally necessary. The first thing to do, rumbled the barrel-chested Vidinsky, is to run a verbal check on him to see how the brain is functioning. His circuits should be checked, too, said Brentwood softly, but that can be done later. I'll get my testing equipment ready so that I can hook it in immediately after you get through with the verbal check. He looked over at Miss Devereaux. Vivian, 
I thought perhaps it might be quicker if we ran a few straight math checks on him before the verbal check, she said. It wouldn't take long, and if there's anything wrong in that area, we'll know what to look for in the later checks. Would that be all right with you, Ted? Videnski nodded. Certainly, certainly. Uh, save us some backtracking, maybe. Nobody asked me anything. I was just a tool. I was a switch that would turn on the machine these people wanted to play with, that was all. I could see a long, boring day ahead for Daniel Oak. If anything, my prediction was short-sighted. Not only was that day boring, but so were the next three. In effect, I told McGuire that he should let the nice people into his hull and answer all their pretty questions. After that, there was nothing much to do but stand around and watch while the others worked. Mostly, I watched Brentwood doing his circuit checks. It was a great deal more interesting to watch lights flash and meter needles wiggle and lines dancing on oscilloscope plates than it was to listen to conversations that sounded as if they'd been lifted from C. L. Dodgson's Treatise on Logic. A man is marooned on an asteroid without food or water, and only one day's supply of air in the tanks of his vac suit. If there is an emergency air tank on the asteroid, it contains enough air to last him for two weeks. If there is a flare bomb on the asteroid, then there is an air tank. There is either a dismantled communicator on the asteroid, or an emergency water supply, but not both. There is either an emergency food package, or flare bomb, or a single hibernine injection, or there is both an emergency food package and a flare bomb, but no hibernine. If there is an emergency water supply, it contains enough water to last the man four days. If there is a hibernine injection, then there is a dismantled communicator on the asteroid. If there is an emergency food package, there is enough in it to last him for one day, and there is a dismantled communicator. But if they are not both there, then neither is there. If there is an emergency air tank, then there is an emergency water supply. If there is a flare bomb, he can set it off immediately and rescue will arrive within two days. If there is a dismantled communicator, it will take a man one day to put it together before he can call for help and rescue will arrive in an additional two days. If there is an emergency water tank, there is either a single hibernine injection or a food package or both. If there is a hibernine injection, the man can use it to put himself into suspended animation for exactly 24 hours, during which time he will need neither air nor food nor water. If there is air or water or food on the asteroid, or any two of them or all three, the man will use each at the normal rate until it is exhausted or the man dies or he is rescued. Assuming that, without hibernine, the man can live for exactly two days without water, exactly one week without food, and exactly five minutes without air. Can he be rescued? If so, how long will it be before he is rescued? If not, what is his maximum survival time? 
Does this problem have more than one valid answer? If so, give and explain both. Or is the problem unsolvable as given? If so, explain why it is unsolvable. Sit around and listening to that sort of stuff for very long, and you begin to wish you were out on an uninhabited asteroid somewhere. Problems like that are the sort of thing that any simple-minded computer can solve in a fraction of a second, if they're reduced to binary notation first. But poor McGuire had to do his own mathematical interpretations from English, and the things got more complicated as they went along. And McGuire went right on answering them in his calm, matter-of-fact baritone. I remember that particular problem because, while Vidinsky was reciting it, Brentwood pointed at an oscilloscope plate that had nothing on it but a wide, bright, flickering band of light that wavered a little around the upper and lower edges. See that? he asked in his tenor voice. That's a tracing of McGuire's thinking processes. Actually, it is a very thin, very bright tracing, but it's moving over that area so fast that you can't see it. A high-speed camera could pick it up, and if the film were projected at normal speed, you could see every little bit of data being processed. Then he patted a small instrument that was sitting near the oscilloscope plate. Of course, we don't go to all that trouble. We record it directly and analyze it later. And that analysis can be pretty maddening at times, said a very lovely voice behind me. I turned around and gave Vivian Devereux my best smile. Her close-cropped blonde hair looked a little disheveled, but it didn't make her any the less beautiful. "'What does Vidinsky say?' I asked. "'Is McGuire still passing his exams?' She smiled. "'Ted says that if this keeps up, we can get McGuire a scholarship at Caltech.' Then she frowned slightly. It all depends on the analysis, of course. We'll have to see how his timing is and how many actual computations he's using for each problem. It'll take a lot of work. I could hear Vidinsky's voice still droning away in the control room, alternating with an occasional answer from McGuire. Normally, McGuire only used a speaker in whatever compartment I happened to be in, but I'd given him orders to stick with Vidinsky during the testing. I'd also had him shut off his pickups everywhere in the control room so that our chatter wouldn't be going into his brain along with Vidinsky's. In the lounge where we were, Brentwood had removed a panel that gave him access to the testing circuits. To actually get into McGuire's inner workings and tamper with him would be a lot tougher. McGuire wouldn't allow it unless I told him to, but even if he did, getting to the brain required three separate keys and the knowledge of the combination on the dial of the Durasteel door to the tank that held his brain. Explosives would wreck the brain if they were powerful enough to open the door, and so would a torch. Viking spacecraft had taken every precaution to make sure that nobody stole their pet. "'How long before we can give McGuire his test flight?' I asked. McGuire had been into space once, but it hadn't been a shakedown cruise. Vivian looked at Brentwood. "'Tomorrow, unless something unforeseen shows up, huh, Irwin?' 
That's what the schedule says, murmured Brentwood. Great, I said, just great. There's schedule and no one's told me anything about it. Anything else I should know about, perhaps? Some little thing like where we're going, or whether I should pack a bag, or whether I'm even invited along? Vivian Devereaux blinked. It was a very pretty blink. Oh, my goodness, I'm sorry. I guess we haven't kept you very much in touch, have we? We're so used to working together that... She let the words trail off with a sheepish smile. Brentwood chuckled a soft, good-natured chuckle. <laughs> I thought the chief had told you. By the chief, he meant Ellsworth Felder, the head roboticist. As far as these people were concerned, Sven Midgard was just a spacecraft engineer. Not a word, I said, mentally making a note to find out why Santa Claus Felder had failed to notify me. Well, bring a suitcase, Vivian said. We, or rather you, are taking McGuire on a test hop to Phobos. Mars is pretty close right now, so it'll be an easy drive sunwards. If all goes well, you're to set him down at Sirtisport for his first planet landing. Then to Luna for a day or two. Then directly to Earth and Long Island Spaceport. We should know by then how he behaves. Why Earth? I asked. There didn't seem much point to it. Keep it under your hat, she said. Manager Ravenhurst is planning a big publicity campaign. First ship to make the voyage without a human hand at the controls and all that. I don't know why, but he wants to make a big splash on Earth if McGuire has checked out perfectly as far as Luna. Oh, well, Ravenhurst's the boss. I knew why. The general public didn't know how shaky Viking spacecraft was, and neither, presumably, did the robotics staff. That knowledge was strictly managerial level, but a big splash on Earth would boost Vikings' prestige tremendously, with a possible rise in stock values, which would take some of the shakiness out of Viking. By the time the day's work was over, I'd heard all of Vidinsky's rumbling baritone that I wanted to hear. I was grateful to get back to the relative silence of my apartment. I opened a beer, lit a cigarette, and relaxed on my bed for a few minutes before I made a phone call. I punched B-A-N-N-I-N-G-6226 and got an answer almost immediately. The screen didn't come to life, but a voice said, Marty here. Hello, Oak. He could see me, even if I couldn't see him. If anyone punched that number by accident, Marty would simply turn on a recording that said, The number you have punched is not a working number. Please disconnect and punch again. This is a recorded message. There is no point in letting just anyone get in touch with the Ceres branch of the Political Survey Division through their secret channels. Marty, I said, the test hop is tomorrow. I gave him all the details as I knew them. Hmm. He sounded thoughtful. If either Thurston or Baydecker agents are going to try anything, it seems as though this would be the time to do it. I think so, too. Do you have any new information at all? Not much. Thurston's men don't know what Baydecker is up to, as far as we can gather. 
but the Baydecker agents have an idea that Thurston is trying to take over Viking, and they don't mind at all. They're evidently hoping that the Ravenhurst-Thurston battle will create enough confusion so that it won't take much push on their part to topple the whole mess and take control. We know most of the regular agents on both sides, and we've managed to get a lot of that information to Colonel Brock so that he can handle quite a bit of the work for us. Marty chuckled a little. <laughs> That's what I call a really secret agent. Brock has no idea that he's an agent for a service he doesn't even know exists. Harrington Brock is a good man, Marty. Don't underestimate him. I don't. It's a shame he just doesn't have quite what it takes to be good PSD material. I hate to be referred to as material, good or bad. Do you have any idea how Baydecker or Thurston might be going to pull the grandstand play? Not a one so far. How about that robotics team or the engineers who are working on the ship? Think any of them could be in the pay of a rival? It's possible, I said. But I don't know which one or ones it might be. I've been watching them for three days, and they all seem to be on the up-and-up to me. And that worries me. How so? You'd think that at least one of them would behave suspiciously by accident once in a while. You know, nerves or jumpiness from pure personal reasons. Hangover, maybe, or woman trouble. But no. The clue of the dog in the night, huh? Does that mean you suspect all of them? He asked dryly. Sure. Isn't that what a good detective is supposed to do? I wouldn't know. I'm just an information post. I will say this, though. If any of that bunch is connected with either Baydecker or Thurston, he isn't a professional. He's someone who's been contacted secretly and offered a heavy bribe. We're checking back on all of them now to see if there's anything in their paths which might indicate that their ethics are not what they should be, or any unusual circumstance that might indicate blackmail or financial pressure. Nothing so far, though. Nothing. I thought for a second and then said, Is there any known rival agent in any position to sabotage McGuire on Phobos, Mars, or Luna? Several in each place. But we'll have agents there to keep an eye on them. To be honest with you, Oak, I don't think there's much to worry about. I don't mean you shouldn't keep your eyes open, but... I know what you mean, I said. Do my own worrying and don't worry you with it. All right. Meanwhile, if you get anything I can use, call me, and I'll let you know at this end. Fair enough. Good luck. I wished him the same and cut off. I had time for one drag off my cigarette and one swallow of beer before the phone chimed. I put my beer down and pushed the switch for the audio only. Yes, I said. The face that came on the screen was one I'd never seen before. A man about my age, I thought, or maybe a few years older. His skin was tanned, whether by heredity or sunlight was hard to tell. His features were not distinctive enough to be sure. His hair was medium brown and cut rather longer than the crew cut which is common in the belt. I'm calling for Mr. Daniel Oak, he said in a low tenor voice. I touched the vision button and let the pickup transmit my image to him. 
no point in playing cagey just at that time. Speaking, I said. You're Mr. Daniel Oak of New York? he asked. That's right. The confidential expediter? He seemed to want to make very certain of his quarry. That's right, I repeated. His smile was a little stiff. My name is Venuccio, Mr. Oak, Andre Venuccio. I'd like to speak to you about a matter of employment. You mean you want a job? This is a conversational gimmick known as the deliberate misunderstanding or the innocent needle. He twitched his head a little, which might have been a negative shake. No, no, I wish to employ you, Mr. Oak. Well, I'm pretty busy right now, and I... He cut me off with, Mr. Oak, I have come all the way from Earth to speak to you. I assure you that this is most important. I would like very much to discuss it with you. Well, all right, go ahead. Not over the phone. There is a possibility of its being tapped. I would like to meet you personally. I took a couple of seconds out for thought. There are a lot of places on Earth where a phone line can be tapped with fairly cheap equipment. But on Ceres, everything goes through a synchronized random scrambler circuit, just as it does in the more modern cities on Earth. Nobody's been able to crack it yet without a good-sized computer and a lot of luck. Still... Very well, Mr. Venuccio. If you could be here in half an hour... No, no, he said quickly. Your apartment might be bugged. He had a point there. He couldn't know that I'd already made sure that my apartment was bug-proof. A self-contained broadcaster isn't much use inside Ceres. The metal walls stop almost any radiation before it can get very far. If my place was bugged, Conductors of some kind would have to be used, and I'd gone over the place thoroughly to make sure there was no such thing. In addition, I'd used one of my favorite gadgets, a non-random noise generator. Because a conversation is patterned, it is possible to pick it out of a white, purely random background noise, even if the background noise is louder than the conversation. But my little sweetheart was a multiple recording of 10,000 different conversations, all meaningless, plus a lot of white noise. After the gadget is connected up, the walls vibrate with jabber that can't be analyzed even by the best of differential analyzers. Only in the hush area away from the walls is it quiet. But my caller couldn't be expected to know that, and I didn't feel like telling him. I decided to see how far he'd go. Mr. Venuccio, I said in an apologetic tone, I'm sorry, but my present work will require several more weeks, and I understand that, he said quickly. He seemed to be a great one for interruptions. But I assure you that I can make it worth your while. What would you charge for an hour of your time? It would depend on what I'd have to do. All you have to do is listen to me explain my problem and my proposition to you. An hour, at the very most. I could meet you at the Seven Sisters in half an hour. This is very urgent, Mr. Oak. Not to me, it wasn't. But my intuition told me that there was something here I ought to know about. 
All right, Mr. Venuccio, I'll be there. It'll cost you a hundred in cash for the consultation fee. Have it with you. In case he didn't know what I charged, that ought to give him some idea. He didn't flinch. Very good, Mr. Oak. I'll see you in half an hour, then. Goodbye. And his image vanished. Interesting, I thought. There was something definitely phony about Mr. Andre Venuccio. His manner of speaking didn't sound natural. It was as though he were attempting to pretend to be something he wasn't. I made a few phone calls and came up with more information. The last ship directly from Earth had landed four days ago. Mr. Venuccio could have come in by flitterboat, but it didn't seem likely, if he had, as he claimed, come all the way from Earth to see me. Aside from the fact that my staff in my New York office wouldn't have told him where I was, there was also the fact that no Andre Venuccio had come in on the last ship. I made two more calls, one to Marty and one to Colonel Brock, and then began to get ready for my appointment with the enigmatic Mr. Venuccio. The Seven Sisters is one of the most elaborate dining clubs on Ceres. It caters strictly to the moneyed class and is positively drenched in snob appeal. The food is good, the liquor is good, and the entertainment is adequate. Since all three have to be imported from Earth, the first two are expensive, and the last one is the best they can get, because most of the top-flight entertainers of Earth don't feel that it's worth their while to go asteroid hopping. It is one of the few public places in the belt where you will be expected to dress for dinner. That means a jacket and Bermuda shorts over your union suit. As far as decoration goes, the Seven Sisters is the lushest place in the belt. The walls of the main dining room, which is about 60 by 60 feet in floor area, are paneled with white oak up to a height of 8 feet. Wood is expensive in the belt. Forests on the asteroids share the null class with snowflakes on the sunward side of Mercury. Above the paneling, the ceiling is domed and black, and a pattern of bright pinlights representing the Pleiades, greatly enlarged, glitters against the blackness. The floor is decorative traction tile, white and pale blue, with rust-red geometric designs on it. In the middle of the floor there is a hollow, transparent column, brightly illuminated from below. Four feet in diameter, it rises a dozen feet above the floor to a flat, truncated top that is opaque to prevent the light from hitting the dome overhead and ruining the pseudo-sky effect, and mirrored on the underside to reflect the light back down the column. Inside, thousands of tiny, faceted plastic gems are kept constantly in motion by forced air currents, swirling up and down the inside of the transparent column, easy enough to do under Ceresian gravity. Each spinning gem, scarcely larger than a pinhead, catches the light and scatters it around the room. It's a sort of macroscopic tendal effect that is quite impressive. I told the head waiter that I wanted Mr. Venuccio's table and was escorted straight to it. Venuccio was waiting for me. He stood up as I approached and gave me his stiff smile. 
He was short, not more than five feet six, and rather lean. I got the impression that his jacket was padded to make his shoulders appear wider than they were. "'Sit down, Mr. Oak,' he said in that oddly forced voice of his. "'Would you care for something to eat, or a drink, perhaps?' He already had a drink, still three-quarters full. "'Not just yet. Later, maybe.' I had watched him as he stood up, and I went right on watching him while we sat down. For a man who was just in from Earth, he handled himself remarkably well under low G. "'We may order later,' he said to the waiter. As soon as the waiter was out of earshot, Venuccio leaned toward me and suddenly he was all business. One hand slid a banknote across the table. "'Here is the hundred we agreed upon, Mr. Oak. I can state my proposition very quickly. You only have to listen.' I palmed the hundred and slipped it out of sight. "'You have rented yourself a pair of ears, Mr. Venuccio.' "'Very good.' He kept his voice low and even. "'Do you know anything of the Kronos Water Corporation?' "'Sure. Kronos is one of the companies that mines the rings of Saturn. A lot of water here in the belt comes from the ice they ship in. Why?' "'Not exactly,' he said, ignoring my question. "'They now have full control of their only rival, Titan Enterprises.' I am a stockholder in Titan, and I am convinced that there was chicanery involved in the transfer of managership. The Kronos Corporation intends to raise the price of water in the belt and make a lot of fast money. Does the government know about this? No. Even I can't prove it on paper. That's why I want you to go out there and get the information. It will have to be done quickly before Kronos can file notice of new prices. What do you mean, quickly? You'll have to take the Warbow, which is leaving for Luna this evening, in order to catch the Plunger, which is leaving Luna for Saturn. There won't be another chance for three weeks, and that will be too late. It was all very pretty. Saturn was on the other side of the system at the time, and it would be a nice long trip. I shook my head. "'Sorry, Mr. Venuccio, but as I told you, I'm already engaged. "'You'll have to get someone else.' "'He looked suddenly desperate. "'I will pay you well. "'I'll buy out your present contract, and I'll pay you double for the work.' "'We spent the rest of his bought-and-paid-for hour haggling. "'Or rather, he haggled. "'I asked a lot of questions, and he tried to answer them "'in order to convince me that I should go.' And I just asked more questions. Exactly one hour from the time I'd been handed the hundred, I stood up. Venuccio was in the middle of a sentence, but I said, Your hour's up, Mr. Venuccio. The answer is still no. Thank you for your business. But he started to rise, started to grasp my sleeve. Sit down. I didn't say it harshly or angrily, just firmly. He sat. I don't want to be bothered by any more of this kind of thing ever again. Is that understood, Mr. Venuccio? He nodded wordlessly, and I left him sitting there. As I moved toward the door, the head waiter came towards me. Before he could say anything, I said, Mr. Venuccio is taking care of the check. 
I know that, Oak, he said in a low voice. We'll have him tailed when he leaves here. I never would have recognized him. It was Colonel Harrington Brock wearing a plexiskin mask. Got any idea of what he wants or who he's working for? He wants me to leave Ceres, which would hold up the testing of McGuire. Offered me plenty for it, too. I'm pretty sure he's wearing a plexiskin mask, too. And I'm almost certain I've heard that voice before, but I can't quite place it. We'll find out, Brock said grimly. Then he gave me a headwaiter's smile and went on his way. I went out through the ornate doors of the Seven Sisters. When I got back to my apartment, I looked it over carefully. It didn't look as though anyone had made an unauthorized search. I called Morty, and he assured me that the men watching the place had seen no one go in. But I was already fairly certain that the purpose of Mr. Venuccio's appointment had not been to lure me away from my apartment. He wanted me to go a lot farther than that. I drank a couple more beers and smoked four or five cigarettes while I thought things through. Then I got ready for bed, cut the lights, and went to sleep. The next morning I showed up at Vikings Testing Area 4, with a hot breakfast inside me and my vac suit outside, ready to go sky-climbing with McGuire. McGuire's tall blue spire shone brightly in the sunlight, and looked, as he always did, as though ready to take the leap at any time. There would only be five of us aboard. Besides myself, there was the short, chubby Ellsworth Felder, head of the robotics staff, the boyish Irwin Brentwood, the tough, taciturn Theodore Vidinsky, and the lovely Vivian Devereaux. We made the last-minute checks to make sure everything was ready for the hop to Phobos, and then I took command. Plot a 1G orbit to Phobos, McGuire. Take off in five minutes. Yes, sir, said McGuire. He thought for a minute, then said, Course plotted, sir. Good. I glanced at Brentwood, who had set up his instruments in a semi-permanent installation for the trip. Did you get that, Brentwood? He nodded. All right, McGuire, we're going to be doing a few tests out in space, so for right now, just follow the curve of the first half, up to five minutes before turnover. I'll let you know what to do then. Warn me at five minutes before turnover. Otherwise, just keep going until I give you further orders. Yes, sir. How much longer until takeoff time? Three and a half minutes, sir. Begin a countdown at minus thirty seconds. One count every five seconds until minus five seconds. One count per second from there to zero. Lift at zero. Yes, sir. We got everything settled, made sure there were no loose tools lying around, sat down in the lounge chairs to wait for the lift. Pretty soon, McGuire said, Minus thirty seconds. Finally, he said, Five, four, three, two, one, zero. And we all sank down in the chairs under the pull of a full standard G of acceleration, 1,000 centimeters per second squared. Ceres fell away from beneath us and slowly receded in the vast blackness of space. 
I got up and stretched my muscles, and the others began doing the same. It takes time to get used to a full G again after spending time in the belt. Even in a flitterboat, you're in a bucket seat, lying on your back. You can't do any walking around in a flitterboat. The change in Ellsworth Felder was remarkable. All that chubbiness that had ballooned out under the low gravity of Ceres and made him look like the cheerful cherub was pulled into sagging folds under the pull of the ship's acceleration. It made him look fifteen years older. None of the others seemed to be bothered much. Felder kept his good humor, though. He didn't seem to know that there'd been any change in his appearance. He rubbed his hands together and said, "'I, for one, always get hungry when the gravity goes up. May I suggest an early lunch?' Nobody disagreed with him. End of Part 2